I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the Beastie Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Joining me today is Adi Ignatius. Adi is the Editor-in-Chief of the Harvard Business Review and has a glorious history in journalism and authorship. He uh, worked for the Wall Street Journal as their Moscow and Beijing bureau chiefs. He has been the Deputy Managing Editor of Time. He's an accomplished author, having published several bestsellers, including Prisoner of State and Path to the White House, about President Obama's journey to the White House. And in this uh, special edition of Thinkers and Ideas, we're discussing a book called HBR at 100, but I guess we're also discussing the reality of HBR at 100, HBR the premier place to publish business ideas. And so we're delighted to hear from Addis' truly unique vantage point on ideas in business. So congrats on the book and the anniversary, Adi, and thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Martin. It's really, it's great to be here. So let's start with the book. You had to choose 30 articles from hundreds and hundreds. Was that a difficult process? Very difficult. I mean, some are obvious. I mean, there, there's some articles, Michael Porter on competitive forces that not only do they have a place in institutions and in business schools as a bedrock of strategy teaching, but that article just sells and sells and sells as a reprint for us. So, I mean, there's certain things that absolutely have to be on a list like this. Others are difficult. And we probably had a little bit of a recency bias, you know, probably had more recent articles than maybe we should have, but they're the articles that we sort of know, that we know have impact today and that made the list. I see. But it wasn't simply in rank order of sales for the articles. It was your judgment about the most important articles. It was judgment, but it was informed by data. So the data we have are things like reprint sales, are you know even articles that became books. We have book sales, or even bulk book sales, where companies buy books as learning tools. So we we had all of that at our fingertips. But at the end of the day, yeah, it was a, it was a subjective process. So if you look at this list of thirty articles and ideas, what are the common characteristics of the the big idea that lasted and had impact and is still in in demand? Do you deduce anything about the art of producing such an article or the type of ideas from the list? Really hard to generalize. A lot of it is post facto. I mean, you know, the most successful article we've ever run was a relatively short piece, you know, when COVID broke out and we were all kind of quarantined at home and trying to figure out what was going on. And we wrote a piece that identified what everyone was feeling as grief, not a piece you would necessarily expect from HBR. And that you know, by a long shot was the most read, most shared, most viral article we've ever published. Somebody I work with said, you know, we should hire an editor who just does those viral stories, which is a great concept, but you don't know. You don't know what short form pieces will go viral or even, even the long-term pieces. So, so it's hard to generalize. I mean, you can look at them and try to explain why. I mean, Porter's contribution to strategy was needed at a time where we were thinking more seriously about strategy. And he gave us this framework that even though, you know, there are other approaches now, it was incredibly useful. Steve Blank on the Lean Startup, it was, it was something that was needed for that moment. I mean, it was, it was starting to emerge and, and he put his, look, we, we very rarely are the first people to talk about an idea or a concept, but by the time it gets to us, we've made a judgment that this is important, that managers need to know this. And I think, I think some of it is that we play that affirming role for these articles and that helps them take off. So you, you're generally not able to spot the bestsellers at the time of publication, but as an editor, are you confident that you can spot the ones that have little chance of becoming so, or is that difficult too? <laughs> <laughs> well, so we do that with books 
for sure. So, I mean, I wouldn't share any of the details, but we, you know, we publish maybe 25 authored books a year and then an additional 25 curated collections. And, you know, with every book you publish, you have projected first year sales and they can be very small or they can be very large. So sometimes we know that something is not going to have big, broad impact, but we're deciding to publish it because we think in that niche area, this is, this is advancing. And for a certain subset, this will be very important. So where do the ideas come from? Is your list representative of that or the larger list from which you drew? The most new or big ideas in, in business come from businesses themselves or from academics or consultants, or is it fairly evenly matched? It's mixed. I mean, if you look at even the most recent issue of HBR, I was looking at it recently with that in mind. And, you know, there's a, there are pieces from executives. There's a piece from the CEO of Hershey about, about that company's transformation. There is a piece by an HBS professor on Formula One driver Toto Wolf, who's, you know, sort of the champion in that world and what lessons can be learned. We have a piece by some guy named Martin Reeves. You know, that would be from the sort of consultant thinker, thought leader. It's a mix. And I think we succeed when we have a kind of healthy mix. There are people who think that everything we publish comes from Harvard Business School. You know, the reality is maybe 20% of what we publish comes from Harvard Business School. And that's a, that's a mix that feels about right. Do you see any pattern in the type of ideas that are popular over time? Because I, I guess I could imagine that you know, the nature of the strategic environment is changing and that's informing the ideas that are in demand. Or I can imagine there's something more arbitrary, something more akin to fashion in managerial ideas. What patterns do you see as you look at the, the grand sweep of which articles were popular over time? Yeah, I think fashion is a good term for that. So we actually, you know, a few academics took the entirety, 100 years of HBR, and did some keyword searches to sort of figure out if the data showed a trend. And, and it does show some trends, and they, they probably conform to what you would think, you know, what, what we know about the evolution of management theory. But, you know, in the early days, it was a lot of writing about financial operations. I mean, very sort of technical aspects, you know, industry structures you know, regulation and Frederick Taylor, sort of scientific management of production. Over time, I mean, there was a period where just strategy exploded. It went from a topic, we hardly use the word to an explosion of strategy as people sort of learned that, all right, that's, that's how you get ahead. You have a competitive strategy. You know, then there's, there was an evolution toward more human issues, things like the motivation of workers. Later, more recently, to the centrality of the customer, the power of the consumer. And even something that you think of as core to the history of HBR, leadership. You know, leadership as an activity distinct from management, you know, is relatively, you know, maybe the second half of our century where that really became an issue. So, yeah, I mean, you know, there are things, you know, now we write a lot about sustainability. We write about diversity. Maybe 20 years from now, you look back and say, oh, yeah, that was 2022. And they were writing a lot about that for whatever reason. But it may be that we're over-indexing now on those topics in terms of where we might be 10, 20 years from now. So what are, what are the rising topics right now? What, what do you see on the first signs of the, of the new topics as your editors commission pieces and yeah. you know, accept and reject pieces? Well, what's the, the coming wave, do you think, as, as best you can discern it? So we're always struggling with how to talk about technology. You know, as I said before, we will not be the first to write about you know, the metaverse. But when we feel that there's a moment where where managers and not just who work at Meta, you know, need to know about the Meta, you know, then we'll jump in and, and do a piece. So we're always trying to figure out, I don't know, human machine relationship. I think there's a lot more to be said. I mean, this is very of the moment, but sort of office versus remote versus hybrid. 
I mean, I can't project 100 years. It'd be folly to project 100 years, but even let's say the next five years, I think the purpose of an office is still up for grabs. I think that's a really interesting concept, the sort of new collar idea in labor, less of a focus on degrees, more on skills, more on adaptability, not a new topic exactly, but it, I think it's gaining importance. And then, you know, almost most interesting to me, the view of capitalism and of purpose seems to be evolving. You know, the role of the corporation in, in society, I think we've had 50 years of, of one thing, kind of maximizing shareholder return, and we're heading towards something else. We're creating something else. I'm not sure what that is, but I hope our pages help figure out what that is and what the theory of, of that is. I guess HBR's perched in a very interesting place that is, has the intellectual credibility, but is at the same time very accessible. I'm wondering, how, how does HBR think about the balancing rigor and relevance and topicality and, and accessibility? How would you characterize your formula for, for breaking some of those compromises? Well, we're nobody's first read, or second or third, probably, maybe fourth, fifth. So one bias we have is that what we publish should be actionable, should have a kind of clear takeaway. And, you know, it's, it's easy to make fun of HBR because of the 11 lessons on whatever topic. But, you know, we want to provide that value. We, we want people to feel like there's tangible value in everything we do. Rigor, you know, almost everything we publish, including short form, is based on either research or firsthand experience that a CEO, say, or, you know, somebody in the thick of it can talk authoritatively about. So we always, if people say, why is this person writing about the topic? We want it to be really clear why they are. But, you know, in the old days, everything we published was kind of long form, 12 page, print only, you know, kind of rough going pieces that would pay off if you if you made it through them. We had to, you know, a, de a decade ago, we gingerly started doing digital, started doing short form, started doing, you know, more graphics and then audio and video. And we're a little worried that, you know, the establishment would think this somehow wasn't what they wanted out of HBR. And, you know, of course, it's been fine. And, and our readers are like everybody else's readers. You know, if you can help them. These are difficult concepts. You can help them with, with visual cues or give it to them in an audio burst instead of print. They respond to that. So, I mean, we're on TikTok now. We have a sub-brand for, for younger kind of first-time managers or, or people who are majoring in business. You know, so that's a, that's a new avenue for them. And, and people get it. People get that there's, there's a different approach to content depending on the platform. And they sort of make the adjustment and expect one thing out of a print piece and expect something else out of... And you've been very successful, of course. Remarkably successful. I mean, I, I guess you're the, the dominant publication of your type. And you know, relative to other businesses, it's conspicuous that, at least in my view, you don't seem to have big competitors in Europe or in, or in Asia. And there are only a few magazines which are anything like HBR. How do you account for the dominance of your position, the, the concentration of the market, and how that has lasted over time, do you think? Yeah, I, well, I'd, I'd be interested in your view of that too. I mean, it's funny, we've, we've outlasted most of the companies we write about. I don't have an easy answer for that. I mean, in terms of your question about Europe and Asia, you know, cross-border publication is just hard and it's difficult in print because of delivery issues, but it's even difficult digitally. And so it may be that just we have this large enough audience in, let's say, the U.S. and Western Europe that is focused on these ideas and, and we have a, a ready market for them. And it's maybe less true in other parts of Europe and Asia. I don't know. Now, we do have regional editions. 
that are translating HBR stuff and creating their own content in Chinese, in Japanese, Korean, you know, in German and French and Italian and Russian until recently. So maybe that partly meets the need. But yeah, I mean, there are competitors. There are competitors that I respect. We have the advantage of time. We used to be a niche. We were smaller than what other publishers wanted to be. Now everybody wants to be our size. You know, 300,000 very avid subscribers who renew and who buy products in addition to subscribing to the basic publication. So, you know, we're lucky and, and we have the Harvard brand. I mean, that that's not a positive in all circles all the time, but I think generally it's a, it's a huge competitive advantage for us. I'm not sure whether HBR had an original mission statement, but relative to the original sort of de facto mission of, of the company, is it still pretty much true to that or, or have there been big changes over time. You've, you've referred to some of the changes in the channels, but is the essence of what you're trying to do the same over time? Probably. I mean, so the Harvard Business Review is really created by a very farsighted dean, I think the longest serving dean in the history of Harvard Business School, Wallace Donham. So he did a little intro in the very first issue 100 years ago. You know, the idea of the publication was to provide a general theory of business and he was adamant. He said, this is a quote, he said, without that, business will continue unsystematic, haphazard, and for many men, a pathetic gamble. So, you know, it was really, it was interesting. It was sort of time to, to get serious back then. So I guess we're still doing that. I mean, we believe that management is important, that it's about how people interact. It is about efficiency and profitability. It is about offering opportunity. It's about innovation. So Again, it was more operational and maybe tactical initially, and now we've broadened out and it's much more kind of human and there's a lot of talk about empathy that wouldn't have been in the publication 100 years ago. But I guess we're still trying to do the same thing, that we believe that if you're a lifelong learner, you can learn from the research that people are doing in business and improve your business, improve your life, improve your career by taking it in. You've diversified your channels a lot. As you say, you have TikTok now and these uh, short-form digital pieces. Has that been a seamless transition or has it, has it been hard to move away from the, the classic formats of the book and the full-length article? And I'm wondering in a sort of an you know, attention-starved world whether there's going to be some more fundamental evolution of, of how we capture managers' attention for communicating with them that you might have an opinion on. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm agnostic about, let's say, print versus digital. You know, if, if our readers said, you know what, we want it all digital and for whatever reason, because it's interactive or because it's on their phone or that would be fine. I mean, the fact is so many of our subscribers still want print. You know, we've been predicting the demise of, well, okay, so here's like 20 years ago, I would have thought that by now the books we read would be eBooks, we'd read on e-readers and there'd be embedded video all the time and it'd be interactive and you'd communicate with other people reading. That's not what people want. You know, we still like to do long reads when we're in the mood for it, when we've cleared the deck for it. And that has surprised me. We have an internal project in BSG called the Article of the Future, which is essentially trying to say are there other ways of communicating serious content that place, you know, less time demand on managers or are more, you know, friendly for the, the current generation or the next generation. And we haven't figured it out. And I wonder whether you had any clues. So we definitely have not figured it out. Look, if you bet on shorter, you're probably right. HBR, our articles, certainly print, are longer than almost anybody else's, but they are shorter than they used to be. And every consultant we bring in says, you want a shorter, you know, smart brevity like Axios. I mean, that's, that's probably true. And, and that's what I guess we're assuming. 
I don't know. I, I still think there's more to be done in a kind of community where people, I mean, what you learn when you connect with our community is they know almost as much as our experts. And they know a lot because they're right in the thick of it and they're solving business problems and they're thinking hard about all this stuff. What we haven't figured out yet is how to get those people to connect with one another. We've done some experiments. I still believe there's a way. So here's an example. So if we do an article on some big topic, you know, and then there's a sidebar that brings it to life and we say, well, here's how they did it at Apple. And that's good. That's good content. But then people are going to say, yeah, I'm not Apple. I mean, why is this relevant to me? So if we had this online community of people who were talking to one another and saying, yeah, we tried something like this at my company, you know, and then suddenly you have examples that are, you know, small companies, family owned companies, global companies from everywhere sort of sharing experience. That seems doable and that people would trust our brand or trust us to gate this in a way that isn't garbage, but is a serious conversation. So I'd love to figure that out. I, I feel like that may be at least part of the answer. Yeah, I think that's, that corresponds to my intuition too. If I, if I look at the neglected assets, let's say, it seems to me that you've got enormous untapped potential in the, the network of your readers and, and also the, the network of your writers, you know. Perhaps you're the biggest potential speakers bureau on the planet without knowing it or something. I, I, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of value in the network, I think. And there, there has to be untapped potential there would be my intuition. Well, we've talked about this before. Maybe, Martin, we can get together and try to solve this because it's, it's not easy creating a community and convincing people that they need to be part of it. But I, I think it's part of the answer and we just need to figure out how to get there. So unfortunately, our time is coming to a close, but let me maybe end with a couple of more personal questions. HBR educates managers on the latest ideas and so on, but you're a professional journalist and, and writer. I think one of the things you also do is educate business writers on, on how to write properly. Do you have any thoughts on the state of business writing? It's, yeah, it's coming along. Look, I, I am blessed with a team of amazing editors. You know, the typical engagement between an author, particularly an academic author and an HBR editor, it's tough. We're not subject matter experts at HBR, but we, I think we're experts at taking a piece and, and having it have a momentum and, and make sense and, and inspire people. And that can be a painful process along the way. So the pieces we publish tend to be by people who are brilliant, who sometimes are not great writers. Look, I mean, there is that line, you probably heard it before, Ted Levitt, the marketing professor who was the editor of Harvard Business Review at one time when it was HBS faculty who had my job, who said, you know, HBR is a magazine written by people who can't write for people who won't read. You know, I, I think we've come a long way. And, and in part, you know, we've got short form, long form, digital multimedia approaches to things. But, but we have editors who, who can take really complicated stuff and make it, make it readable. So that is, that is a blessing. I don't know if the writing's getting any better, but the editing is staying really, really top notch. So what's the next big frontier for HBR? What's the next big dragon that you aim to, to slay in the evolution of the publication so that you're around for this conversation in a, in a hundred years time. Yeah, that sounds good. So one of the things we're thinking about is how to twin kind of learning modules, learning pathways with the kind of, you know, media stuff that we do. And there's a fine line maybe between media and learning in our space, but I mean, our, our big experiment now is, you know, is there, let's say, a tier of subscription or a tier of membership to HBR where, you know, you're not only getting the articles that we produce and that we curate, but also an opportunity to deepen, you know, not just, well, you like this article, you like this one. I mean, that's okay. But I mean, ideally, where people would share knowledge about themselves that's 
equivalent to LinkedIn in terms of here's what I have done, but then goes further. And here is what I would like to do. Here is who I would like to be. And if we could probably through some machine learning application, really track people. Okay. You want to be on a path to become chief marketing officer or something like that. Well, here's what we know about who you are, what you've read, what you've done, what you've accomplished. You know, if we could sort of badge people on the way with our content, maybe even bring content in from, from other people, you know, be a marketplace for learning from other people that, you know, it feels like the pieces could fit together and it would be something that we could do. It would make sense for HBR to do that. And that I think could resonate with, with individuals, but that's, that's something we're kicking around right now. So the final question, of all of the articles in the book, do you have a personal favorite in terms of its lasting impact and the quality of the writing and so on? And I, I think I have a guess in mind. Let me see if I'm right. Well, so I wanna, I'm going to answer it in a completely different way, but then I want to hear what you say. So we actually missed one article, which is non-intentional, and I can't really explain it, but you know, Michael Jensen on the Eclipse of the Public Corporation, you know, 1989, in some ways might be the most influential article we have ever published. And your statement before, your use of the word trend, in a sense, it helped solidify a trend that lasted for 50 years of this, not only focus on shareholder return, but a belief of CEOs that they had no choice but to focus on maximizing shareholder value, that that was their responsibility, that was their fiduciary duty. And, and in some ways, it sort of happened. It, it happened during an era, you know, let's say Milton Friedman leading to Reagan and then Clinton. It just, it fit, it fit the time and in, in some ways became orthodoxy for sort of 50 years. And I'm not sure where we go next. So, so in some ways, the most influential article for reasons I can't entirely explain is not in this collection. Ah, interesting. I thought you were going to say Drucker, you know, well-written, timeless, concise. Well, thank you very much for spending time with me, Adin. Congratulations on the, uh, the anniversary and the book. Yeah, thanks, Martin. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks a lot for this conversation. So in this special edition of Thinkers and Ideas, we've heard from Adi Ganesius, Editor-in-Chief at HBR, on the book HBR at 100 and on the, the history and philosophy of HBR. I strongly recommend the book. There aren't many books where you get to see 100 years of management thinking and, and to ponder on, you know, what makes the big ideas and where do they come from and how do they create impact. I find it very, very stimulating from that perspective. As always, we'd love to hear from you if you have any feedback. And if you like this conversation, do subscribe to the Thinkers and Ideas podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. 